Welcome to Sound Prints Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prints is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushevel. I'm your host for this week's magazine. Welcome to Sound Prints for February 6, 2020. Sound Prints is really packed this week, so let's get right to it. At the discussion time at the January 31 Greater Louisville Council of the Blind Roundabout, each attendee was asked to tell the group about his or her first job. It was really interesting to hear about the wide variety of jobs that everyone had done in high school, college, or as young adults. Some people began their working careers as sighted individuals and then lost vision later in life. Most people had been blind or visually impaired as teenagers. Listen on page two as we share our first jobs. The first speaker, by the way, is Deb Lewis, and the other person who does not give her name is Patty Cox. On page 3, you'll find a press release from the American Council of the Blind concerning the new accessible absentee voting in West Virginia, certainly a timely topic in this presidential election year. The second item on page 3 announces new policies related to federal fair housing regulations and assistance animals. We all love to eat, and sometimes we get frustrated with hearing about all the foods that we should eat or that we shouldn't eat in order to be healthy and live longer. On page 4 are two articles about food from allrecipes.com that share some good information about bad foods that aren't quite so bad. A welcome change about all the hype about foregoing our favorite foods. And on page 5 is the Sound Prince calendar. Page two. Okay, so now let's see if we can start off and talk about our first jobs. Who wants to tell us about their first job? I have the mic, so I may as well. All right, go ahead. I think you've got a great one to tell us about. When I was 12, my parents opened two Dunkin' Well, they opened a, a Dunkin' Donuts shop. So on the weekends, my job, and I got paid for this, was putting the boxes together that the donuts went in, all, you know, that people used to put the donuts in all week. And I used I'd stay in the back room and in the storeroom and make boxes and make boxes and make boxes for hours on the weekend. And then after I had enough boxes made, I got to fill donuts. And so I learned how to put the donuts on the machine and push the button and it went, and there the donuts were filled, you know, and. It, I also learned to use the uh, donut filler that you had to press the handle down. So there was an automatic one and one that you hand pumped. And I, the fun thing was putting the donuts in the bin of sugar and picking up two donuts at a time and clapping them together and putting them over on the tray. And I wonder how much sugar I got all over the place. <laughs> so that was that was pretty neat. I think I was, when I got about 75 cents an hour. Yeah. That was, that was pretty decent back then. Yeah, I was happy. Yeah. I'm Sue Ellen. You next? Okay, my first job that I really consider a job was my work-study job in college. I was a, I was assigned to work, initially, they, um, the first year that I did work-study, I was, my assignment was to work on the front desk in the all-girls dormitory. 
this basically consisted of when any visitors came, when any male visitors came to the dorm, I had to either page the floor as a whole, um, or in the case of the first floor, where, um, no, with the, with the first floor only I had to actually page on the intercom. On the other floors, I could call the payphone. And if no one answered, I'd use the intercom. But they would, uh, my job was to summon the person they were there for and, key, and make sure they signed into the book so that we knew who was in the dormitory at any given time. That sounds like discrimination <laughs> Eventually, they changed it to any guest, male or female. And they also, the next year they did that, and they also instituted a policy where you had to take IDs, which is when they took me off the front desk and they started a hunt trying to find another work-study job for me. What? Everybody looked the same to you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. I guess Susan. I've done that. I don't know if, uh, if Clovernook counts or not, because I only stayed there a week, but I worked Clovernook and I didn't get paid uh, at first because I was just too new and they wanted me to be, uh, be there uh, so many weeks and also on the job so many weeks, I guess, before I could get paid or something, but I worked at Clovernook and worked in the bindery and, and collated and folded books and magazines, or magazines actually, and, but then I left after about, about a week or nine days, but, but it was like, this was in 1974 when, right before I started working at Sprint House. Hello, I'm next, out of the mic, so I'll just be next. Deanna? My first job that I went out and did something somewhere besides home, I always made crafts and sold them at, the, at my dad's restaurant thing. My first job was at Greenbow Lake State Park, and I was a cashier, and that was really nice. And we have there were three of us, and we had a lot of fun. And I worked there the summer between my sophomore and junior year of college. I was a cashier, okay, in the gift shop. And people would come up and tell me what they bought, and, and then I would, I knew all the prices. And one day, I'll just say this, one day we were, they were having a ribbon cutting ceremony because Jesse Stewart was there and he had new books and he was signing them and stuff. And the governor was there and the cash, the, uh, the electricity went out and the gift shop was really crowded. And the business manager wasn't sure if I should be in there or not because maybe somebody would take advantage of me or whatever and that day I kept all the running totals on an abacus and wrote stuff down on the slate and after the when the electricity came back on I was able to put them all back in the cash register and he liked me after that okay my first uh, first job was at the industry and uh, I started out down there as part-time and then Ned Cox said they had some full-time positions that come open and he was wanting to know if I was interested in one. I said I, w I would be interested and uh, so I think I was down there about 25 years, I believe, and uh, so that was, that was my first job. Kendall, what you do on your, on your uh, first? A, a number of things. I, actually, my first job that I started out with, they got these uh, 
from uh, where they made the mattresses, the material was sold to the cotton. So they was uh, they was wanting to salvage the cotton, and we had to uh, talk about picking cotton. We had to pick that uh, that material off of the cotton and save the cotton and throw the you know where they trimmed the uh, you know the around the edges of the mattress. We had to pick the cotton and throw the scraps of material away. Uh, that was my first job in there. Then it was package work, and then from there it went to making boxes. And then then after that after that. Uh, and I'm not I'm not proud of it, but it was a it, it helped pay bills. I worked for an escort service, and which uh, that <laughs> that you know no I didn't I didn't uh, I didn't I didn't get any of that any of the girls. I mean I but uh, I, I sent them out on calls. Uh, people would call and they you know. They want somebody, and I would give them the descriptions and take the, the credit card information, and you know. It, Did you make up those descriptions? Uh, no, they they gave me they came in and gave me the descriptions, and I I had them I had them on a uh, on a braille speak, and uh, I would uh, you know when somebody somebody came in, I would uh, uh, you know give them the description when they called, I would give them you know whatever description you know weight. Hide whatever you know person wanted if they had anybody available at that time, and uh, you know that's that's what I did until finally they they decided they didn't have money to pay me and had me work about nine or ten days and they couldn't pay me so. Yeah, Butch. Oh, Butch. Okay. Uh, my first job, as I can remember, was a babysitter. I'm a babysitter, and I had two boys. It was about, um, I think I was like 12, 13, and I had two boys whose parents um, had jobs of their own, and they would bring the boys to me, and I would keep them for a couple hours a day before they went to school, and, they, and I'm sure they, they, they paid me, I just can't remember how much, but the experience was, um, exhilarating because I had, you know, two boys and uh, they all would, you know, put their clothes on, tie their shoes, make sure they got out to go to school in the mornings, Monday to Friday, and uh, it was a nice experience with, with kids. Craig? My first job was doing construction for my family's construction business. And we built houses, did concrete work, roofs, Windows, siding, uh, framing. I did. I was the the uh, laborer. As a, probably I was probably twelve years old when I first started working. So I did the labor and got the my uncles the tools and swung a hammer and read a tape and all that stuff. So I had a good experience. Okay, this is David. David. I can't top Kendall. Uh, uh, the first job where I earned a paycheck was a uh, restaurant called uh, Banquet Table Smorgasbord. You did, it, it was a buffet type restaurant, so you could get anything you wanted there. I started out, uh, I was a sophomore in high school, and uh, I would I would walk from our house. It was, it was a, probably about a mile 
uh, and uh, to work. And uh, I started out as a busboy, and I worked my way up to dishwasher, then meat carver, and finally cashier. And I was there for two years, and uh, I think I had my two-year pen still at home somewhere. And I quit uh, a couple of weeks before I graduated high school because I was going to enlist in the military two weeks after I graduated. Elaine, uh, my first job started when I was in the uh, high school at senior year. Mr. Evans, he helped us to get a job at the St. Mary Elizabeth Hospital in the dark room developing x-rays films and that was a very interesting job. And that was my first job. So that was through KSD, right? Yes. Allen. Allen. When I was a kid, my uncle had a bait shop, so a friend and I started going to the creek and we'd catch crawdads and so on through my uncle's bait shop. And that's how we made money and we did that for two summers. And he'd give us, I don't know, five cents a piece or three cents a piece. I don't remember how much it was now. Uh, yeah. yeah. Kind of two. Uh, first one, uh, I ain't lived in the housing project, and my job on Saturday morning was to try out four garbage cans, wait for the garbage truck to come, and then try them back in, and I got to die Saturday. That would buy me a software. And then when I came to KSB, uh, they had what they called the student work program, talking about 75 cents I reminded me of it, and 72. Uh, started out working, you know, maintenance, uh, going around and uh, trimming rose bushes and all that stuff. But, uh, and they paid us 75 cents an hour. This is Ben, by ben. the way. All right. Um, Mr. Ben. The first paid job I had was in the summer of 2005. And two, um, I was the summer between my junior and senior year in college. Um, my church, the pastors at my church was able to help me get a job working at the as a camp counselor at East Bay Camp in Bloomington, Illinois. Um, it was the first time I had a job I got paid for, and the, the cool thing was, like, Adam, I got paid to have fun and eat good camp food all week, or all for, from June until August. So, um, learned a lot, got to be outside a lot, and go on some fun outings and stuff, so that's pretty much it. All right, mine first job was actually I don't even know how old it was, but Rick Ricks was actually working at school at the time, and um, myself and good old Joe Hollins ended up working, I think the very first thing we ended up doing together was uh, cleaning up the study hall they had over there at the time, and boy were they ever messy. <laughs> They'd eat in there as well as who knows what all else, but anyway, that was our first job, and of course, uh, went on to doing different things from there, everything from maintenance work to doing recreational um, tear down and clean up in some cases uh, putting up stuff for different events and programs so we sort of did a little bit of everything so that's, that's about how the first job it, I should say first jobs started out over I don't even know how many years but needless to say so another first job as a student at KSP Natalie so my first job was um, doing the switchboard at ISBI. Um, there's not really much to say about it because <laughs> all I did was pretty much answer the phone 
Um, pay was crap, but at least it bought me like snacks and pop in the dorm. My first job was in a vending stand. I just don't remember which one I went to first. <laughs> one of three. It was fun though. Yeah. So it was either in a in a in the grocery store at Knoxville Manor, or grocery store at Friendship House, or uh, what did you call that thing? It had machines and a soda fountain. Um, actually, the one down in the office building. Uh, I think that might have been your first. Or Claudia's Grocery. Those one of those two would have been your first. All right. So my first job. My first job was at Kentucky Industries for the Blind, KIB, and I was 16. Um, it was right before, I had just turned 16, it was right before my senior year in high school, between junior and senior years, and um, I put corks on whiskey bottle tops, so I guess you would say that I was a corporate. <laughs> and and um, that was, uh, it. We made really good money because minimum wage, as several people have said, minimum wage at that time was 75 cents an hour, but it was piecework. And so we got paid so much for each gross of bottles that we corked. And um, I, I mean, we, it, it was great money for, um, you know, for, for a teenager back then when prices were so low. I think I figured that I averaged a dollar forty-three an hour at a time when minimum wage was seventy-five cents. I, I, I think I figured that out at the end of the summer, as being what I had made. I was pretty good at it. I wasn't nearly as good as later Adam and Kathy Jackson and some of them, but uh, I could still work pretty quick. And I worked right beside Jean Bray, who who was David Bray's father, and Jean was really really helpful and in showing me, he and a couple of the other people that had worked there, it was, the job could have been kind of dangerous because it was easy to break those bottles in your hand. And um, I mean, some people I saw break bottles in, in their hands and they needed stitches. One person had to go to the hospital and have 11 stitches one day. Um, it, was a, it was kind of an experience. One Saturday morning we went into work, we got behind on bottles and had to work all morning and I broke 11 bottles myself. So they would, they um, taught me how to wrap my hands up really good to keep from getting cut uh, cuts and my dad was always worried I was going to cut my hands so I wouldn't be able to play the piano. So that was my first job. What do y'all think? I think Kendall got the, yes, Kendall Kendall. the most. Kendall. <laughs> Kendall's job was definitely different. <laughs> Title. Page 3. This next article comes from the ACB Leadership List and was posted on February 5. It's a press release. ACB commends West Virginia for making absentee voting accessible to people with disabilities. The press release is posted on acb.org slash ACB dash commends dash WV dash accessible dash absentee dash voting. Alexandria, Virginia. 
On Monday, February 3, West Virginia Governor Jim Justice signed into law Senate Bill 94, a bill to ensure that all voters in West Virginia are guaranteed access to the ballot box at polling locations and when voting absentee. On behalf of our nationwide membership and in conjunction with the Mountain State Council of the Blind, the American Council of the Blind commends West Virginia for working with us to ensure equal access to absentee voting for people with disabilities. Quote, a critical guarantee of our democracy is the right to privately and independently mark, cast, and verify an election ballot. This right is not always afforded to people with disabilities at the polling location or when voting absentee. The American Council of the Blind commends Governor Justice and the West Virginia State Legislature for working with ACB to pass SB 94 to ensure all residents of the Mountain State may fully participate in the democratic process, said Eric Bridges, Executive Director of the American Council of the Blind. Prior to this law, blind and visually impaired West Virginians could not independently and privately vote via absentee ballot. No alternative method to traditional paper ballots existed to allow those who could not visually read the ballot to vote independently. West Virginia will now implement an alternative absentee voting method that will allow those who cannot visually read the ballot to take advantage of this alternative voting system if they wish to do so. While advocating for this new form of access, the American Council of the Blind, Centers for Independent Living, and West Virginia Voters with Disabilities were represented by the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs. Shepard, Mullen, Richter, and Hampton LLP and Disability Rights of West Virginia. Quote, Ensuring equal access to the ballot is fundamental to our democracy, yet voters with disabilities have been consistently disenfranchised in absentee voting by the requirement to vote by paper ballot. We applaud West Virginia for recognizing the importance of equitable access to the voting process for all voters and the right to cast a private, independent ballot. SB 94 will help to remedy the historic disenfranchisement of voters with disabilities by providing an accessible, secure online option by which they can cast their ballots, said Jonathan Smith, Executive Director, Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs. This article was posted on ACB Leadership on Thursday, January 30. It is entitled HUD Issues Guidance on Reasonable Accommodations under the Fair Housing Act Relating to Assistance Animals. And this was posted from hud.gov. Washington. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, today announced the publication of guidance clarifying how housing providers can comply with the Fair Housing Act when assessing a person's request to have an animal in housing to provide assistance because of a disability. The Fair Housing Act prohibits discrimination in housing against individuals who have disabilities that affect a major life activity. The Act requires housing providers 
to permit a change or exception to a rule, policy, practice, or service that may be necessary to provide people with disabilities that affect a major life activity an equal opportunity to use and enjoy their home. In most circumstances, a refusal to make such a change or exception known as a reasonable accommodation is unlawful. A common reasonable accommodation is an exception to a no-pit policy. A person with a disability that affects a major life activity may require the assistance of an animal that does work, performs tasks, or provides therapeutic emotional support because of a disability. Housing providers may confirm if it is not apparent whether the requested accommodation is needed because of a disability that affects a major life activity and is a reasonable request. This new assistance animal notice will help housing providers in this process by offering step-by-step set of best practices for complying with the Act when assessing accommodation requests involving animals and information that a person may need to provide about his or her disability-related need for the requested accommodation, including supporting information from a health care professional. Quote, Countless Americans rely on assistance animals to fill a void, providing individuals with disabilities with the means to have a home that supports their quality of life, stated Secretary Ben Carson. Quote, In my many discussions with housing providers and residents impacted by the need for assistance, I recognize the necessity for further clarity regarding support animals to provide peace of mind to individuals with disabilities while also taking into account the concerns of housing providers. Today's announcement responds to the ambiguity surrounding proper documentation of assistance animals with clarity and compassion to provide an equal opportunity for a person living with a disability to use and enjoy their home. End of quote. Quote, for decades, HUD has recognized the rights of individuals with disabilities to keep an assistant animal in the home where it is a reasonable accommodation, said Anna Maria Farias, HUD's Assistant Secretary for Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity. Quote, housing is unique, and a person with a disability that affects a major life activity might need an animal that provides support in ways that is not readily apparent to housing providers. For example, veterans or senior citizens may need the assistance or therapeutic support of an animal to help them cope with the symptoms of a disability that affects a major life activity. This guidance will help housing providers to recognize the important way assistance animals can improve the lives of persons with disabilities and to meet their obligation to grant such accommodations. End of quote. HUD General Counsel Paul Compton added, quote, With the assistance animals notice, both housing providers and individuals with disabilities will better understand their rights and obligations under the Fair Housing Act regarding assistance animals, particularly emotional support animals. 
For housing providers, this is a tool that can be used to help them lawfully navigate various sets of sometimes complex circumstances to ensure that reasonable accommodations are provided where required so that persons with a disability-related need for an assistance animal have an equal opportunity to use and enjoy their housing. The guidance will help ensure that these important legal rights are asserted only in appropriate circumstances. End of quote. Additionally, this new assistance animal notice provides information on the types of animals that typically may be appropriate and best practices for when the requested animal is one that is not traditionally kept in the home. It also provides information for both housing providers and persons with disabilities regarding the reliability of documentation of a disability and disability-related need for an animal that is obtained from third parties, including Internet-based services offering animal certifications or registrations for purchase. Because they apply to more types of facilities than housing, the laws applicable to public accommodations and government-funded facilities, including Americans with Disabilities Act and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, while sometimes overlapping with the Fair Housing Act, have different and sometimes narrower requirements. Similarly, public transportation and common carriers, such as airlines, are also subject to different rules. The Assistance Animal Notice does not address those circumstances. Persons who believe they have experienced housing discrimination may file a complaint of discrimination by contacting HUD's Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity at 800-669-9777 or visiting How to File a Complaint on HUD's website. HUD's mission is to create strong, sustainable, inclusive communities and quality, affordable homes for all. More information about HUD and its programs is available on the Internet at www.hud.gov. Page 4. Bad Foods That Are Actually Good For You from AllRecipes.com Cheese, Potatoes, Chocolate, Oh My! by Lori Herr, H-E-R-R. Seems like every time you turn around, you hear that this food or that will make you sick. Eggs cause heart attacks. Potatoes make you gain weight. Or this one, coffee stunts your growth. Relax. Recent research shows many so-called bad foods actually deliver powerful health benefits, like helping you stay mentally sharp, avoid chronic diseases, and live longer. The fact is, Practically none of the food you find in a supermarket will kill you unless it's gone bad or you eat way too much of it, says Aaron Carroll, M.D., in his book, The Bad Food Bible. Why you can, and maybe should, eat everything you thought you couldn't. But unless your doctor has told you to avoid specific ingredients, he writes, the watchword is moderation, not abstinence. Here are nine foods to take off your taboo list. Hello, chocolate, and why they're good for you. Breakfast cereals. Boxed cereals 
often get a bad rap for being heavily processed and high in sugar. But that doesn't mean you have to skip the cereal altogether, says Kristen F. Gradney, M-H-A-R-D-N-L-D-N, a spokesperson for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Most cereals are fortified to include 100% of the daily value of many vitamins and minerals that we need and typically don't consume, she says. Indeed, a bowl of fortified cereal topped with milk gives you a double dose of vitamin D, a nutrient more than 40% of Americans don't get enough of. Ditch the sugar-coated stuff and choose whole grain varieties for a hefty helping of fiber and protein. Eggs. For years, they were blamed for sending cholesterol levels through the roof, raising the risk of heart disease. But while eggs are high in cholesterol, doctors now know that for most people, dietary cholesterol doesn't raise blood cholesterol. Plus, eggs are loaded with essential nutrients like choline, which helps brain function, as well as protein, healthy fats, and calcium. Dark chocolate. Rich, sweet, and delicious. It has to be bad for you, right? Not as long as you don't overdo it. Good quality dark chocolate made with 70% or more cocoa is packed with iron, magnesium, and other important minerals. It's also rich in heart-healthy flavanols, powerful antioxidants that help lower blood pressure and may help prevent diabetes. One study found that dark chocolate has more antioxidant activity than blueberries, cranberries, and a number of other fruits. Red and white wine. We all know too much booze can be deadly, but multiple studies show that a little alcohol now and then may be good for you. Doctors have said for years that a daily glass of red wine can help fight inflammation and prevent heart disease thanks to its high levels of antioxidants. More recently, a 2017 study of more than 300,000 adults found that light to moderate drinking of alcohol, including beer, wine, and spirits, seemed to protect against early death from all causes, including cancer and heart disease. Still, moderation is key, the researchers stress. Women should stick to one drink a day or less, and men no more than two. And if you don't drink now, don't start, cautions the American Heart Association. Coffee. It's been blamed for causing cancer, heart disease, and even stunting people's growth. Not so, recent research shows. In fact, a moderate coffee habit, up to five cups a day of black coffee, not the venti-sized, super-sweet stuff, could add years to your life, according to a large 2015 study. Other studies suggest coffee drinkers may have a lower risk of heart disease, type 2 diabetes, Parkinson's disease, cirrhosis, and some kinds of cancer. Still not convinced, a study of more than 6,000 older women found that the caffeine in coffee may help protect against age-related memory problems. So, pour yourself another cup. Just watch the caffeine, if you know it makes you jittery.
canned vegetables. Of course, nothing beats in-season produce for flavor and nutrition, but canned veggies do quite nicely, too, as a stand-in, including low-sodium varieties. In one study comparing packaged fruit and vegetables, the veggies scored about the same in nutrients across the board, fresh, frozen, or canned. And get this, some vegetables are actually better for you in a can than fresh. Canned tomatoes, for example, have more lycopene, a nutrient that may help protect against skin cancer, than fresh. And canned sweet corn is higher in antioxidants. Bonus points for your budget. Canned vegetables are cheap. Avocados. Go ahead, enjoy your guac and avocado toast. Yes, avocados are high in fat, but it's healthy, monounsaturated fat, the kind that lowers bad cholesterol and fights heart disease. They're also packed with vitamins and minerals, including potassium, a nutrient many of us don't get enough of. And their hefty dose of fiber, one avocado provides almost half of your daily needs, helps you feel full, so you're less likely to reach for seconds. Cheese. It has probably topped your list of sinful foods for years. Clogs your arteries, puts on pounds, but there's a bright side. Cheese contains calcium, fat, and protein, and often has vitamins A, B12, and minerals, Gradney says. High-fat cheeses like brie and cheddar also have small amounts of conjugated linoleic acid, CLA, which helps fight inflammation, weight gain, and heart disease. Another plus, some research suggests nibbling on cheese may help prevent cavities. Potatoes. They've been over-villainized, Granny says. Packed with protein, fiber, and vitamin C, The humble potato also delivers energy-boosting carbs, as well as potassium, magnesium, and many other nutrients, all for less than 100 calories. Just go easy on the butter, sour cream, and other high-fat potato partners, and use the peel whenever you can. That's where most of the nutrients are stored. And here's a related article. Also from allrecipes.com. The best anti-inflammatory foods to eat, plus eight to avoid. Inflammation is at the root of many chronic diseases, but you can fight it with food. Arm yourself with knowledge and then use these delicious disease-fighting ideas that are from a cookbook called Meals That Heal by Carolyn Williams, Ph.D., R.D. Two Types of Inflammation Inflammation is a natural response by the immune system, but there are two very different types. Good acute inflammation occurs when we get a cut, break a bone, or come into contact with a bacteria or virus. Symptoms like swelling, redness, or a fever may be bothersome, but these are signs the body is healing itself. The symptoms will go away in a few days. Bad chronic inflammation is triggered by a foreign body or irritant such as chemicals, additives, and other compounds in the environment or in the food we eat. It is triggered 
by stress and inadequate sleep, too. Symptoms are vague, and this inflammation doesn't go away on its own. Foods can either calm inflammation or contribute to it. Top 8 Inflammatory Foods to Eat Leafy Greens Romaine Spinach Kale Extra Virgin Olive Oil Berries Cruciferous Vegetables such as Cauliflower, Broccoli, Kale, and Brussels Sprouts Fatty Fish such as Salmon Green Tea Fermented and probiotic-rich foods such as yogurt, kefir, kombucha, K-O-M-B-U-C-H-A, and kimchi, K-I-M-C-H-I. Nuts and seeds. Top 8 pro-inflammatory foods to avoid. Foods high in saturated and trans fats. Foods with added sugars and or artificial sweeteners. Fried foods. Processed foods. Cured and processed meats. Alcohol in excess. Caffeine in excess. High omega-6 to omega-3 ratios. From subtle to serious, think of Initial chronic inflammation as a small fire in the body. It's localized and not yet severe. Poor food choices trigger inflammation that can result in slightly higher than normal blood sugar or blood pressure. But just as how sparks from a small fire can create a second or third fire, this initial inflammation can increase the body's sensitivity, making it easier for irritants to result in inflammation from another area of the body. Poor food choices, combined with stress and inactivity, can trigger inflammation in the form of weight gain, hypertension, and or insulin resistance. If these small fires aren't put out, more fires start, and they become one large systemic blaze. In the body, symptoms become more noticeable. If nothing changes, inflammation pushes the body to serious conditions, such as obesity, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease. There are 25 diseases and conditions connected to chronic inflammation. Signs and Symptoms Speak with your doctor about chronic inflammation if you experience any of the following. Memory loss, joint pain, weight gain or inability to lose weight, above normal blood sugar, hypertension or prehypertension, bloating, gas, or constipation, high LDL, low HDL, high triglycerides, fatigue, new sensitivities to food or the environment, headaches, Long-term effects of bad inflammation. Unless it's calmed, low-grade chronic inflammation takes a gradual toll on the body, damaging cells and overworking the immune system, which can lead to these health issues. Heart disease, type 2 diabetes, dementia, cancer, osteoarthritis, and irritable bowel syndrome, just to name a few. The right ratio, often labeled the good fat, Unsaturated fats and oils contain both omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids, but most Americans 
overconsume omega-6 and don't get enough omega-3. This skewed ratio, as well as the fact that omega-3 fatty acids reduce inflammation and prevent disease, is thought to be a contributor to inflammation. Healthy fats and oils are made up of a blend of fatty acids, so choose good sources of omega-3, such as fatty fish, flaxseed, walnuts, chia seeds, and omega-3-rich eggs daily. Then choose foods that have a high proportion of omega-3s like avocados, almonds, and oils from olives, avocados, canola, corn, and peanuts. 60% of Americans with at least one health condition either caused by or aggravated by chronic inflammation. Page 5. The Sound Prince Calendar. Please note that additional committee meetings and board meetings are announced on the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org and following the event link at the top of any page. On Sunday, February 9, the Kentucky Council of the Blind Next Generation Chapter will hold its monthly meeting at 8 p.m. by conference call. The number is 669-900-6833 and the code is 3572-595-193. On February 10, the Bluegrass Council of the Blind will have a community outing from 11.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Enjoy a cup of coffee, hot chocolate, soft drink, and sandwich or donut with us at McLeod's Coffee Shop. This special coffee shop employs people with special needs and is the brainchild of Brewster McLeod, a retired pastor from Southland Christian Church. McLeod's Coffee Shop is at 376 Southland Avenue in Lexington. Reply or call for more information by calling the Bluegrass Council of the Blind at 859-259-1834. On February 10, ACB Next Generation will have a nationwide conference call at 8.30 p.m. by phone. ACB members and individuals under the age of 40 are invited to join this conference call. Dial 669-900-6833 and enter code 3572-595-193. February 11, the Support Alliance of the Visually Impaired will have its in-person meeting in Owensboro from 1 to 3 p.m. Central Time, an opportunity to learn about the Davies County Library presented by Lita Begg, librarian. They'll also share information, collect dues, and have a membership committee meeting at Wesleyan Heights United Methodist Church, 1215 Sherm Road in Owensboro. For more information, call 270-684-4418 or 270-686-8689. On February 11, the Savvy Board will meet at 7 p.m. Central Time on the Zoom conference call line. On February 12, Savvy Panel on Aging and Coping with Vision Loss. The panel from the Office of Vocational Rehabilitation, Division of Blind Services, will include an O&M specialist and Selected Savvy members will share information about resources and coping with vision loss at the Senior Community Center of Owensboro, Davies County, 1650 West 2nd Street from 
12 to 1.30 p.m. Central Time. On February 12, BCB will have its Peer Support Mentoring Group. This meeting will take place from 1 to 2 p.m. in Lexington. The topic is Sharing Tips for Independent Living with Sight Loss. Hosted by Dr. Susan Ament, Peer Support Coordinator, Bluegrass Council of the Blind. At the Bluegrass Community Room, 1093 South Broadway, Suite 1220 in Lexington. For more information, call 859-259-1834. Also on February 12, the Northern Kentucky Council of the Blind will have its monthly conference call meeting at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Call 605-475-4700 and enter code 155619. On February 12, the KCBPR Membership Committee will meet on the Zoom line at 8 p.m. Eastern. On February 13, the Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision will have its support group meeting from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. at United Crescent Hill Ministries, 150 South State Street in Louisville. For more information, call 502-895-4598. February 14 is the GLCB Roundabout, Education and Technology from 3.30 to 5. Discussion time, 5 to 6. Dinner, 6 to 7. Bingo, $2 a person from 7 to 9.30. At United Crescent Hill Ministries in Louisville. Call 502-895-4598 to sign up. On February 15, Savvy will go bowling from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. Central Time at the Bolodrome at 600 East 14th Street in Owensboro. Register by calling 270-686-8689 by noon on February 14. Savvy will pay for rental of up to two lanes. The cost of additional lanes will be divided equally among participants. Everyone is responsible for shoe rentals, snacks, etc. February 16 is an ACB Families Business Meeting at 9 p.m. Eastern. You can participate from anywhere in the country by calling 712-432-3900 and entering code 796096. February 17 is a KCB Board Meeting at 8 p.m. by phone. Dial 669-900-6833 and enter code 3572-595-193. On February 19, the Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision will have a conference call support group at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. This will take place on the Zoom line at 669-900-6833. The access code is 3572-595-193. February 21 will be a GLCB Roundabout, Education and Technology from 3.30 to 5 p.m., a presentation by Kathy and Tom Arnold about how they recorded their CDs from 5 to 6, dinner 6 to 7, and a gospel sing from 7 to 9.30 at United Crescent Hill Ministries on State Street in Louisville. Sign up by calling 502-895-4598. February 22 to 25 is the ACB Leadership Meetings in Alexandria, Virginia. For more information, visit the ACB website at www.acb.org. February 22 is the Mixed Media Mosaic Workshop 
from 10.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. at the American Printing House for the Blind. The guest artist is Patrice Ising. She returns to help us explore how the elements of art appeal to our senses of touch and sight. Mosaics are an ancient art form, generally made from chips of colored stone or glass that reveal a picture or pattern. Our mosaics will combine textures and layers, shapes and forms, to create beautiful one-of-kind tactile art pieces. Free, limited space, best for adults and children six and up. Registration required. Call 502-899-2213. On February 22, ACB Next Generation will hold a Saturday Night Live Hangout at 8 p.m. Eastern Time by phone for ACB members across the country who are age 40 and under or anyone else who is interested in finding out more about the group. The number is 669-900-6833 and the code is 3572-595-193. On February 23, the KSB alumni will hold its February board meeting at 8 p.m. by phone at 605-475-6006, enter code 294444. February 24 is the Guide Dog Users of Kentuckyana membership meeting at 7 p.m. Eastern Time by phone. Call 605-475-6006 and enter code 294444. On February 24 is the Savvy Budget Committee meeting. Visit the website for more information. February 26, BCB Lunch and Learn, 12 to 2 p.m. in Lexington. The program is Mark Armstrong from the Helen Keller National Center. He will present on Resources for Older Adults with Combined Hearing and Vision Loss at the BCB Community Room, 1093 South Broadway, Suite 1220 in Lexington. For more information and to sign up, call 859-259-1834. February 27 is a Savvy Dine-Out in Owensboro from 1 to 2.30 p.m. Central Time. More details coming soon. Call 270-686-8689 for more information. February 27 is another in-person low vision support group sponsored by the Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision. From 1.30 to 3.30 p.m., at United Crescent Hill Ministries. Call 502-895-4598. On February 28, Savvy will have a workshop from 10 to noon Central Time at the Wesleyan Heights United Methodist Church, 1215 Sherm Road in Owensboro. Call 270-684-4418 or 270-686-8689 for details. And on February 28 is the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind Roundabout. Education and Technology from 3.30 to 5. The Tip Sheet from 5 to 5.30. Page Turners 5.30 to 6. Dinner 6 to 7. KCB Next Generation Activity, Games and Crafts from 7 to 9.30. For more information and to sign up, Call 502-895-4598. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 
or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Soundprints. Have a great week, everybody.